Well, good morning, Gateway, and good morning to others who may be joining us online for our service today. Uh, we're continuing with our series, which is entitled A Bigger Picture, as we work our way through the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. And we come this morning to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Well, as I said, this is our series called A Bigger Picture. And I think at this time, we certainly need to get hold of the bigger picture. And I'm going to try and bring that to you today as we go into this incredible passage in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, when it comes to teaching the Bible, there are really no rules about how long it should take. Uh, this past week, I was looking at a chart of how long it would take the average reader to read each individual book of the Bible. And as far as Ephesians is concerned, you can read it in about 20 minutes. Uh, compare that with some preachers who have literally preached hundreds of sermons on this particular letter of Paul. Other preachers might decide to go through it just uh, one chapter uh, a week, and so we'll cover it in uh, six messages. We're looking uh, over the course of ten messages at Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But I mention this for a couple of reasons, because however long or short a series of sermons, it can be really helpful to get the feel of one of the Bible books by reading right through it at one sitting. Uh, so as far as Ephesians is concerned, uh, you can read it through in 20 minutes. So that may be a challenge that some of us could take up. But there's also a personal reason for mentioning this. The last time I preached on this exact same passage, I was able to do it over the course of eight sermons. Uh, today, I've got to cover it in one sermon. So I can only highlight uh, the main points, really. Uh, but let me assure you, you can get a lot more out of this very wonderful passage of Scripture. I'm going to speak to you about good, better and best. So first of all, good. Uh, I remember when I was uh, leading a church, which I did for many years, that very often when I met another pastor, he'd say to me, how's your church? And I would tend to reply by saying, do you want the short answer or the long answer? But what we see here with the Apostle Paul is that he gives thanks for the church. It's there in verse 16. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. And uh, it's good to be part of a church 
that we can give thanks for. Paul specifically says he gives thanks for the church because of its faith and because of its love. So there's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you like, that's the vertical dimension of church life. We're, we're looking up, as it were. We're thinking on Christ. We're trusting Christ. And if I could give uh, an example from Gateway Church here, I think that's been evidenced in our financial giving. It's demonstrated our faith in Jesus. We could be thinking, oh, why bother? We're locked down. You know, it's uh, online services mainly. We're not meeting much and all this kind of thing. Why bother? But in fact, uh, our giving has not only kept up with what it was previously, but has even increased somewhat. So I think that demonstrates faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And during this time, people have been giving, they've been serving. Uh, thanks to all those that work in uh, the unseen background jobs, as it were, as well as the musicians, those that help still with the children's work. So many people still serving and so many still gathering when we've been able to do so for perhaps a few weeks at a time. All this is evidence of faith in Christ, which is good. And then there's the horizontal dimension, because Paul also mentions love for all God's people. Now, when you say all God's people, that could mean all God's people all over the world, or it could mean all God's people in your local area. For us, it would be a BCP, Bournemouth Christ Church and Paul, or it could be all God's people in the local church, which for us is Gateway. So I've only got time this morning to mention Gateway, but love for one another during this time of the pandemic, is seen surely in our help and support of one another. And there have been plenty of stories to demonstrate that that is happening. I always recognise when I say something like that, it's possible that somebody might feel a bit left out. Uh, can I suggest to you that if you do, it's good to attempt an initiative. The Bible doesn't talk about us being loved by one another. It says love one another that we are to be those that, as it were, take the initiative in love. And we can do that at this time by making a phone call or sending an email and so on. So how's your church? Uh, well, I believe that at Gateway we can give thanks for the faith and the love of our church. And that's good. Let's move on to better. Uh, that comes in verse 17, where Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. One of the great things about the Christian life is that there is always the possibility of more. And uh, I could illustrate that in so many ways. But here in this passage, the more is the possibility of knowing God better. I think many of us would say, I want to know God better. How can we do that? Well, that's what Paul is tackling here. And uh, he makes it clear that for this to happen, we need to get revelation. Did you see that in verse 17? I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So what we need is revelation to know God better. It's not just information, but revelation. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts and our minds so that we can really absorb and grasp hold of the truth of God. And Paul, praying for the church in this way, speaks of three specific truths that will help us to know good God better if we really get hold of them. 
So the first thing he, he mentions is that if we want to get to know God better, we need to know the hope to which we are called. And at this time, let's understand once again, we are people of hope. So much despair around at the present time, uh, so much concern, but we stand as people of hope. But God, help us to get to know you better. Help us to grasp hold of our hope even more fully. Give us a revelation about this. And in Paul's letters, he mentions hope in connection with both eternal life and also the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, both of those things uh, are mentioned quite near together in some verses in Titus. So in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. So we have this hope from a God who makes promises and God never lies, and God's promises that we shall have eternal life. But then in chapter 2 of the same book and in verse 13, Paul writes this, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so he speaks of hope also in terms of the return in glory of Jesus Christ. This means that there is hope for us personally and there is hope for the world personally. We're not just going to kind of peter out into nothingness because of COVID or cancer or an accident or old age. We have the promise of God that we have eternal life. That's our hope. And we really need to get hold of that hope at the present time. Lord, establish that hope in us that we are people that really are going to enjoy eternal life. But it also means, according to Paul, that the world won't just peter out into uh, annihilation, perhaps because of the pandemic or climate change or a meteorite strike or nuclear war. It's going to be made new when Jesus Christ returns. That's the hope that creation lives with. So in Romans 8 and verse 21, we read the creation lives in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so creation itself lives in hope of restoration that will occur when Jesus comes again. And here we are in a low point in this pandemic but my friends, we are people of hope and we need to grasp hold of that. Finally, by the way, these two hopes that I've spoken of converge because our eternal life is going to be lived in a renewed creation, a creation that is restored forever. The next thing that Paul mentions about knowing God better is that we might know the riches of our glorious inheritance and that's there in verse 18. Now, I have to say, i put this quite briefly, but there is some ambiguity in the Greek text here. And so some people understand it as meaning that uh, God has an inheritance in us, which is true in some ways, really, because uh, uh, we are God's people. We are, if you like, his inheritance. But other people understand this verse as speaking about our inheritance as God's people. And I've always gone with the latter. 
not only is it the majority view, but perhaps more importantly, the emphasis in this passage is not really on what is God's, but what is ours, what we receive through God's grace. And therefore, uh, we appreciate something which helps us to know God better. And in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17, it actually says, we are as of God. Or if you go to 1 Peter uh, and chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4, uh, we read again, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So we're God's people with an inheritance that we can look forward to. I wonder if uh, we can identify that inheritance. Well, I think it would speak of a resurrection body. I think it would speak of the new creation. But I think it will be speaking also of what is largely hidden from us at the present time, which is described in the New Testament as the infinite riches of Christ. I'm convinced that as Christians, we are forever going to be explorers. We're going to explore the infinite riches of Christ. I sometimes think of it in this way, that you go into a cave, and in this cave the, there is gold and silver and jewellery and precious stones, and it all lines the walls, and you look at it, and it's just fabulous and beautiful. But even as you're looking at it, you, you notice a, a door into another cave, or an entrance into another cave, and you go through that, and it's a bigger cave, and it's even more wonderful in its decoration, and its precious stones, and its jewellery. And then there's a door into uh, yet another cave, which is even bigger and so it goes on and on and on and I believe that we're always going to be exploring the infinite riches of Christ and we need to grasp hold of the wonder of this. Suppose uh, you knew that you were set to inherit one million pounds from some relative when they died. I wonder what you do about that. I think you might dream about it a bit. I think you might uh, plan for it a bit. I'm sure you'd be thinking about it from time to time. Well, there will always be two limitations there. One limitation is that an inheritance is never fully guaranteed. People change their mind about where they're going to leave their money. And of course, even if you do inherit, there's only a finite time to enjoy it. But as children of God, our inheritance comes with no limitations. It's guaranteed to us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and held and kept in heaven safe for us. And it will never be exhausted by eternity. So we grasp hold of the riches of uh, our inheritance. It's going to help us to know God better. And then the other thing that Paul mentions here is the incomparably great power which is at work in us who believe. If we're going to know God better, we need to really get hold of this incomparably great power at work in us who believe. It says that in verse 19, and it also explains that this incomparably great power is in fact resurrection power. So Paul says in verse 19, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, quite often, 
Christians will pray for power. Preachers pay, pray for power, that they may have power in their preaching. Christians sometimes pray for miracles and the power of signs and wonders. Or Christians pray for the power of God to see the church grow and expand. But Paul wants us to grasp the reality of the power which is already at work within us. And he says that power is resurrection power. Now, certain things can be said about this resurrection power. For one thing, this power is a very great power. It's a power that raised Jesus from the dead and it's at work within us. This uh, power is also a saving power. It's what brought us from death and into life. Uh, I think sometimes we can think of becoming a Christian as almost just a matter of changing our minds. And of course we do change our minds, but it's so much more than that. Uh, you can change your mind quite, quite trivially. Uh, you come down to breakfast in the morning and say, uh, I think I'll have toast. And then you can say, oh no, I'll change my mind. I think I'll have a bowl of cereal. And it can be quite trivial to change your mind. But God hasn't done something trivial with us when we came, became Christians. He's taken us from death to life. When you're dead, you can't change your mind. You can't respond in any way. The only reason we were changed and brought out of death and into life with a change of mind is because, because God works in us with resurrection power. And that power has been at work in us. It's also sustaining power. It's a power that will keep us safe forever. <clears throat> this power that was at work in us will never run out. It's at work in us always. And this power is also recreating power so that one day even our bodies are going to be raised to life again. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 11, it says, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit within you. And this powerful spirit is at work within us and will one day recreate and give us a new body. So how can I know God better? Well, we can do what Paul does. We can pray for revelation. And sometimes a revelation can come to us even as the word of God is being preached. Perhaps there's revelation coming to you this morning of the hope to which we are called. The glorious riches of our inheritance as the people of God and the resurrection power that is now at work in us. As we get revelation about this and as we increase in our understanding of this, we're going to get to know God better. So it's good, it's better, and then it's best. And that uh, is also mentioned here towards the end of the passage. And as we look at these last couple of verses, we have to say that Paul is not a man of grammar. He's a man of the spirit. And this means that in Ephesians chapter 1, we reach a really glorious conclusion at the end of this particular passage of Scripture. Really, you could say there ought to be a, a, a full stop halfway through verse 20. But Paul doesn't believe in taking pauses. Uh, certain themes, as it were, set him off and he, he just flows on. 
And here in verse 20, what happens is that Paul mentions Christ risen from the dead. He doesn't stop there as perhaps he, he should grammatically. There's no sense of a pause. He just adds the word and, and he flows on. And listen to how uh, Paul does it. He speaks of the fact that Christ was raised from the dead and God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, invoked not only in the present age, but also in the ones to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul simply cannot stop once he's mentioned the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But this is the best. So Christ was raised from the dead. And remember, that resurrection power is also at work in you and me. But Christ, having been raised, also ascended and is exalted into the heavenly realms where he is in the position of highest authority. I'm reading this scripture here. Uh, it entitled us to say, think about evil powers, but then Christ is raised above every one of them. Or think about rulers and, and those that are people of power. Well, Christ is above them. Think about a prime minister. Christ is above them. Think about a king. Christ is raised above him. Think about a dictator. Well, Christ is superior to any dictator. Think of a president. Well, Christ is raised way up beyond that authority as well. Christ is above them all. Name any authority and Christ is above it. But why? You know, if you uh, bring up uh, small children, there comes a point where you, you suffer the kind of why questions and uh, the kid Kim keeps coming up to you and saying, uh, why? And they come up again, why? And you try and give them an answer very often, but sometimes all you can come up with is, look, that's just the way it is. But why is Christ exalted to the highest place? And that's not just the way it is. The answer is that Christ is so exalted and raised above every other power and authority for the church. And that's what you read in verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now, this expression we got in this verse about uh, God placed all things under his feet is a quotation from the Old Testament and it's the most Old Testament, uh, most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament quotes that particular Old Testament verse. He placed everything under his feet 19 times. Now, no, no time to go into all the detail of this, but sometimes that expression, he placed all things under his feet, refers to men and women. That everything is placed under our feet, that we're given a position of authority, even though we don't yet see that fully achieved. And this is also a verse that is very often in the New Testament applied to Christ. Everything is placed under his feet. 
And this uh, kind of dual use of the verse is part of the wonder of it. Christ is in the position of highest authority. He is able to overcome all his enemies. He has the power and authority to finally rearrange the entire universe for the church so that everything will come under our authority and will come under our feet as well as we reign with Jesus Christ. It's a proof and demonstration of this. Christ loves the church. It is purchased by his blood. It is made to be his body. It is joined to him as his bride. The church will reign with him for eternity. Christ is head over everything and in the place of highest authority for the church. And this is the best. And in fact, Paul hasn't even quite finished at this point because we also have verse 23. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, this verse genuinely makes commentators nervous. I sense that as I read the commentators on this verse. The nervousness is, how do we get this right? And some commentators look at this verse and say, well, all it simply means is this, that uh, Christ fills his church. That's true, of course. The church is the body of Christ. The church is full of Christ. So you can say Christ fills the church. That is true. But I stand on the shoulders of giants here. And I'm talking men like John Calvin. I'm talking uh, men like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, greatest uh, teachers and preachers of the Christian church over the century. And they say this is not what Paul is saying. They say this. Rather, what Paul is making clear here is that the church fills out Jesus. In some way, the church completes Christ. Now, we need an illustration. And I think of a, a man who's going to get married. Let's uh, make him a young man. And let's make him a very handsome young man. And let's make him a very fit young man. And he works out regularly, so he looks really good. He looks physically strong. Uh, let's make him a, a physically strong, handsome young man that has a good, good job. His career is sorted out. He knows where he's going with his work. I mean, you look at this young man and you might say, oh, he's, 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 the, he's the real guy. He's, he's a complete man. But there comes that day when he marries the love of his life. He, he takes a bride. And uh, you know what happens? This bride fills him out. She makes him more complete somehow. She adds to him. Now, I use that illustration to say it must be something like that that we're reading of in this verse. Jesus is the only perfect man. Jesus is the most complete man, of course, that there has ever been. He fills everything in every way. But the church is his bride and in some wonderful way she fills out and adds to the completion of Jesus Christ 
so that together with Christ we will reign for all eternity. Now, how's your church? Good, because there's faith in Christ and there's love for one another. But also we're a church that surely wants to know God, be know God better. And we need to pray revelation that that may happen. That we may know the hope to which we are called, the riches of our inheritance, and also the power, resurrection power, already at work within us. But the best is that Christ is head over everything for the church. In some way means that we share his authority, that everything will finally come under our feet. Maybe even in this time of pandemic, we're meant to demonstrate the authority and confidence of Christ, that we are the overcomers that live in and through and in the glory of his spirit and resurrection power. And also that we are those that being the church somehow fill out, add to and complete the fullness of Christ. That's the dignity of the church. And my friends, at this time of pandemic, that really is the bigger picture. Father, we thank you for this uh, glorious passage of scripture. And Lord, I pray today that you will help us as a church to know God better. We do ask that we might really grasp hold of the hope that is ours. We might understand something of the riches of the glorious inheritance that we're looking forward to, that we might recognize that there's a very great power at work within us that is resurrection power. We thank you, Lord, that even though our churches feel perhaps a bit diminished at the present time, we're scattered and we can't function as we'd want to, somehow, Father, we are the very fullness of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We have authority because we're in Christ. We have a dignity because of who we are as the body and bride of Christ. Lord, I pray that you will help us to get the revelation, to know you better, to walk with dignity and with our heads held high, to know that we have Christ as Lord and that we are his people and that we are caught up into his plan and into his purpose. Help us to see the bigger picture this coming week, whatever the pressures and problems are, I pray, that we may live to the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.